The Quiet Carriage, the show about books and their authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and sponsored by Castlemaine's signature bookstore, Stone Man's Book Room. Broadcast on 94.9 Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network. All aboard. Welcome to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And sponsored by the good people at Stone Man's Book Room. Uh, My guest this week is the author Lee Straw, and we're going to be playing part two of my interview that I did with her about her latest book, her latest book of true crime, The Ballroom Murder, out now via Fremantle Press. And I'll read you the blurb from the book. It's been hailed as the greatest Aussie murder mystery you've never heard about. In August 1925, Audrey Jacob shot dead her former fiancé, Cyril Gidley, in full view of hundreds of guests at a charity ball in Perth's government house. When Audrey was arrested, she still held the gun in her hand. It was an open and cut-shut case of willful murder. That is, until lawyer Arthur Haynes took the case with a unique defence. His ability to play both the press and the jury for sympathy led to one of the most extraordinary outcomes the judiciary system has ever seen. And here's the bio from the author, Lee Straw. Lee Straw is an academic historian and writer. She is the author of True Crime Biographies of Australian Crime Figures, Kate Lee and Dulcie Markham, and Australia's first female detective, Lillian Armfield, as well as the Petticoat Parade, Madame Monnier, and the Roe Street Brothels. Lee was joint winner of the 2018 Margaret Medcalf Award for her book, After the War, The Mental and Physical Scars of World War I. Lee Straw is Deputy Head of the School of Arts and Sciences and Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Notre Dame, in Australia. Now, I read to you last week the prologue from the book. That was before we listened to part one of my interview with the author, Lee Straw. And this week, I'm going to read to you chapter one of the book before part two of my interview with Lee Straw. Here is chapter one from The Ballroom Murder, and it's titled Fremantle Flapper. Audrey Jacob was driven from Government House to the police lockup a few blocks away. Shortly after, a lawyer was engaged to represent her, and the police began their investigation into the murder of Cyril Gidley. Alone in her cell, Audrey waited to see what daylight would bring. Across the city and down by the port, Audrey's family slept through the rest of the night, not knowing that their lives would never be the same again. The Jacob family lived at 592 High Street, Fremantle, but they had moved around a fair bit since Edward and Jesse were married in Perth in 1902. They were both from Victoria. Edward was born in Collingwood in 1871, and Jesse was born in Hotham in 1878, but had met in Western Australia. Their first child, Rupert, was born in Victoria Park in 1903, before Audrey came along 
two years later, on 9th of February, 1905. Her middle name, Campbell, was her grandmother's maiden name. Anne, née Campbell, and her husband, Colin Junior, had emigrated from Cromarty in the Scottish Highlands to Victoria in 1871 with Jessie's three elder siblings. Audrey would identify most with this Scottish heritage. Edward and Jessie moved their young son to Collie in the Wellington district before another son, Clifton, was born in 1907. Three more children were born in the district, Keith, 1909, Enid, 1910, and Verna, 1912, before the Jacob family moved again, this time to Dundas, a town near Norseman in the Goldfields Esperance region. The last two Jacob children were born there, Vivian in 1916 and Dudley in 1919. Within three years they were back in the city, at South Fremantle and then at the High Street House. The family moved with Edward's work as a clerk of courts. The regional appointments gave him more experience for an outgoing city position. In the early 1920s, Fremantle became their long-term home. It was a thriving port town known for its shipping, transport, wharfies and unions. A rough diamond kind of place. If you were going to have a scrape somewhere, it was probably going to be down in Fremantle. The locals stuck fast to one another and viewed visitors with some suspicion, especially if they came from Perth. Western Australia's two main centres had developed distinct characters over the decades. Perth was a shabby, genteel place, whereas Fremantle was working class and proud of its distinction. It didn't stop the press in Perth calling out Fremantle as a port of beastly backyards and stinking slums and the kind of place where you could find a brothel between two churches. And it turned out you could. That was all part of its rugged charm. Fremantle was a poor part of the metropolitan area, with a greater concentration of small cottages and boarding houses in the inner streets. The wealthier favoured the riverside streets of North Fremantle and parts of East Fremantle along the inner harbour. South Fremantle came to be known as home to the racehorse and the battler, with limestone and wooden cottages also having stables at the back. It could also be a rough criminal place. Thieving gangs centred their attentions on the shipping sheds and yards, and the wharves provided dishonest lumpers with opportunities to steal items from cargo, arriving regularly in the port. Police and customs raids in the houses in North Fremantle late in December 1902 failed to turn up six cases of tobacco stolen from the bee sheds at Victoria Quay. But the harbour was not only not the only dodgy part of town. People were susceptible to attacks in alleys and laneways. In April 1924, the head of the Fremantle Criminal Investigation Branch expressed his concern in court that the absence of lights in the laneways behind businesses was an inducement to boys to embark upon careers of crime. Speaking at the trial of three boys charged with stealing from Fremantle shops, he declared unlit lanes provided a, corner of, a cover of darkness from raids of shops during what the paper termed a recent epidemic of thieving in the port town. 
Pakenham, Leek, Bannister and Market Streets all featured regularly in criminal cases being reported in the newspapers. In an effort to deal with the problem of prostitution and history and houses of disreputable character, police raided a number of houses over the course of a weekend in May 1903. Horses in Norfolk, Arundale, Pakenham and Bannister Streets were targeted and the police were commended in court soon after for trying to rid the town of its undesirable characters. But as rough and ready as it was, Fremantle was also a cosmopolitan place, flourishing with the gold rushes of the 1890s and the opening of the port soon after. An influx of immigrants and seamen from around the world clamoured ashore in Fremantle. They came from China, Japan, Sweden, Germany, Britain and America and regularly disembarked at Fremantle, enjoying the town's entertainments or taking the first steps towards a new life. Italians took to finishing in Fremantle and set up market gardens while other European food producers, many of them from Greece, established businesses along Market Street and South Terrace. Local workers and new arrivals with a thirst for beer also brought about the building of new pubs as a means to keep up with a rising clientele. By the 1920s, the p National and Fremantle hotels were also bringing more young people into the port town. The port captured the creative interest of a young Audrey Jacob. The views along the wharf and over the water were ideal for watercolours or acrylics, though both could be expensive and beyond what her parents could buy her. From her house on High Street, she could catch a tram into Fremantle and wander along Fillmore Street and down to the port. The comings and goings of the place were fascinating. People arriving, others leaving, and always something happening. Perhaps it was ingrained in her, this fascination with people moving about, travelling, arriving somewhere new. She had already moved several times in her young life, and her grandparents were immigrants. Audrey also experimented with self-portraits, and apparently they were very good, lauded by those who saw her as gifted. This artistic ability may have come from her grandfather. Colin Junor was a painter before he emigrated to Australia, albeit a painter of buildings, houses, fences and properties. Nonetheless, it took a creative eye to consider colours, texture and broader property appeal. Edward Jacob was not supportive of his daughter's ambitions. He objected to Audrey wanting to become a professional artist. It was hardly going to pay the bills and, as one of the older children, it was on Audrey to help out at home with the cost of living. But it was the Johnson to town with friends which took Audrey into Fremantle's social life and worried her family more. It was a fine time to be a young woman. This was the Roaring Twenties which saw the ascent of the modern young woman or flapper as she came to be known. The flapper had been around since the late 19th century but it was the post-World War I world which made this version of the woman, modern woman, famous. The tragedy and loss of war on a world scale left people looking to a new decade where they could try to overcome the burdens of that recent past. Young people in particular were hopeful for a better future, free of war. Flappers wanted to break from the constraints of the past and push the boundaries of social expectations of femininity. They had already begun this process during the war, with more women, women entering into work in the vacuum created by men enlisting. 
Flappers were not passive women, defining themselves by sexual purity and high morals. They were trouble and enjoyed attention, living beyond convention. They usually started out at 16 or 17 years of age and were determined to stand out in society, especially in public. They smoked, danced late into the evening in clubs and at house parties, and were the cause of great concern in conservative circles. They defied conventions to embrace independent lifestyles. Flappers experimented with colours and designs in their clothing, basking in youthful androgyny. The boyish shaping of dresses would drop drop waists to create straight contours, flatten the chest and hid hips. Dances of the time, many a variation of the Charleston, were also best demonstrated in short, light dresses with no sleeves so that young women could move their arms more freely. The idea, even in the way they dressed and danced, was to proclaim that women could have their own identities. Flappers find one of their greatest champions in the works of American writer F. Scott Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald early works, The Beautiful and the Damned, This Side of Paradise, and Flappers and Philosophers, transform the flapper into a literary symbol for the lost generation of the 1920s. She was powerful, complex, and contradictory. Fitzgerald modelled the flapper on his young, exuberant, and unconventional wife, Zelda and gave young women an icon for an era they could relate to. And his works were being read and talked about in Perth and Fremantle on the other side of the world. Not everyone was keen to see this modern, new modern woman out in public. The Fremantle advertiser raised questions in January 1924 about unprotected young girls being allowed to frequent the streets late at night, and they asked for a curfew. Of particular concern were the sailors meeting the interests of the young women. <clears throat> Quote, in a port of this size, the danger is most acute. Sailors of a, of a certain class, particularly those of different nationalities, are apt to judge by appearances. Girls parading the streets without proper protection are immediately classed by them as belonging to the lowest strata of society and treated accordingly. The girls in the beginning do not realise this aspect. They are eager for flattering attention, and with too much liberty, seek it in dangerous places. If the parents will not realise the seriousness of the position, the matter will soon be taken out of their hands. Somebody has suggested a curfew bell and an attendant patrol. It would seem to be in imminent need. In about a month there will be an influx of British sailors to Fremantle, and while everyone will delight in welcoming them, the lure of uniforms has always had a most seductive effect upon many of our girls. The need for supervision will be doubled, and while we desire our hospitality to be of the highest grade, it must be our aim to see that it is in no way violated. End quote. It was a common sight for young Fremantle women to be seen down at the port mingling with men from the ships, and the local press were particularly harsh about their antics. Quote, when the Belgian bark, which is now in the harbour, leaves port, there will be a much heart-rending, heart-rending amongst the local flappers. Put a naval uniform on a good-looking monkey, and one would have the same results. End quote. Audrey, ja- Audrey Jacob was a Fremantle flapper who enjoyed spending her spare time down at the port, trying to attract the interests of the men working in the ships. She wasn't alone. 
Her friends were there too, vying for attention and entranced by the uniforms and worldly experience. Audrey wore her hair short, her lips red with lipstick, and fashioned herself in the flapper fashions of the day. In stark contrast to the more conservative Edwardian look of her mother's youth. But Audrey was classically beautiful too, and this was obvious even when dressed in the flapper fashions. Audrey was young and wanted more independence. The men on the ships coming and going from Fremantle port seemed to promise adventure. On board for visits to the men, she could be appreciated for her beauty and artistic talents. There was always the hope of a private date with a captain who might whisk her off to some faraway exotic place. Cyril Gidley was 23 when he arrived in Western Australia in 1923. He was a charismatic, good-looking young Englishman who left Grimsby to work as a ship's engineer. His father, Joseph, worked as a fish merchant's clerk while Cyril and his brother and sister grew up, but was later said to have been a shipowner. Joseph and Florence had been keen for their son Cyril to pick up regular work. They hoped working as an engineer on ships would keep him busy and out of trouble. He was young, single, and had a keen sense of adventure at a time when adventuring seemed possible again. It was the 1920s, after all. Cyril's uncle Herbert lived in Newcastle, New South Wales, but Cyril decided to head to Western Australia. He arrived in Bunbury in the state south in April 1923 and worked on the steamer, Newquay, before he took ill shortly after. He relocated to Fremantle, much to the dismay of a young woman with whom he had taken up. In Fremantle, he picked up work as an engineer on the motor ship, the Kangaroo, which travelled to Singapore every six weeks. Cyril enjoyed the company of a small group of close friends while he was in Fremantle, some with connections back in England, and others who worked with him on the ship. There were rumours that Cyril had been kicked out of home in England, told by his parents that he could not return for five years until he had a steady job and turned his life around. The press would also circulate stories that Cyril had apparently brought some disgrace to his wealthy family, especially his father as a retired shipowner. Cyril had a bit of form for causing a stir. Around April 1924, he had an argument on ship with another crew member. As the pair scuffled and fought, Cyril was hit in the stomach with a sledgehammer. He was taken to Bunbury Hospital, where he was stitched up and told to take time off work. This was when he started seeing a young woman in town, but their engagement was soon over. By the late winter months of 1924, Cyril was settling into life in Fremantle. His friend, a customs officer by the name of William Vincent Murphy, offered him a room in his house just outside Fremantle. The pair struck up a friendship, and William's wife, Violet, also came to know Cyril well. Free from his parents' supervision in England and travelling the world, Cyril Gidley enjoyed his freedom. He was stylish, often seen with a cigarette held in a smiling mouth, poised to impress the young ladies in the port city. His features were soft, and yet his eyes were intense. He stood out in the crowd. And it was in August of 1924 that he caught the eye of Audrey Jacob. Over the course of that winter, Audrey and Cyril became friends and then started dating. 
They met on occasion at Cyril's friend's house, where he stayed while on leave from the ship. Violet and William Murphy lived in Palmyra, not far from Audrey's home, but with enough distance that the young lovers would not be caught out. Audrey's parents were not keen on her meeting men from the ships down at the port. She also knew that someone who regularly spent weeks away would not necessarily meet her parents' approval, especially her father. As they wandered down by the port and around the streets, Cyril talked to Audrey about his family back in England and how he was looking to make a new start. Audrey mentioned her love of art and how she wanted to be a professional painter. To anyone who saw them in the early days of their relationship, it looked as if Audrey and Cyril were young and in love. But before too long, cracks would start to show. And that there was chapter one from the book The Ballroom Murder by Lee Straw. Uh, You can hear part one of my interview on the podcast and also the prologue from the book. You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and the Community Radio Network and sponsored by Stoneman's Bookroom. And now we're going to hear part two of my interview with the author Lee Straw about her new work of true crime, The Ballroom Murder, out via Fremantle Press. Have you ever tried your hand at fiction? I have, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was I it was a bit of fun. I did a three books with a small publisher um, from the UK and it was um, featured Detective Sergeant Claire Patterson and so she's a uh, police officer here at Fremantle. Um, she's at the station. It was a contemporary story and it was basically it was telling the story of policing Fremantle with telling the story of Fremantle and how eclectic it is and how interesting it is and the kind of different people are about the place and so I put a female police officer as a central character in the story and then developed it from there so yeah it ended up it was fun I I don't know some people have read them I'm not sure but I kind of did it as yeah, as I say, it's a bit of fun and put in some police, real police stories that I could fictionalise a little bit from what I'd heard from friends over the years and and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, when I finished writing the first one, my husband read it and obviously with his knowledge um, and he said to me, what do, you, what do you think it is that you're writing? And I was like, well, it's police crime fiction. He's like, is it? So we read very different crime fiction and he was kind of looking for a gritty story, yeah, whereas yeah. I've kind of written about more of a relationship that she had with a detective and the relationship had broken up and it was kind of like the dynamics of the station around the two of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was the moment where I went, okay, we, we, we read different things. <laughs> <laughs> I speak about the writing process of authors, well, with authors quite a lot, but not so much academics. What What's yours like? Do you have, like, a set time where you, you can write? <laughs> yeah. You have Sometimes, three kids. Yeah, yeah. I've got three boys, so it's... Uh, oh, geez, yeah. Look, I... I think probably the gift that my kids have given me, of many, um, is that they've made me really appreciate the time that I do get. Mm -hmm. So in the busyness of life, if I get an evening where all three of them have settled now, I've been running for a few years, so they're bigger boys now, they're 8, 12 and 14, so it's a bit easier. They will go to bed by the youngest Mm -hmm. (laughs) at times. But if I get the evenings where they're all settled... I just really use that time. So I've got, we've got a study we share and it's, I've got my little nook in the study and I sit there and I just use the time, cups of tea and just we'll we'll use it. Um, So I'm grateful for those evenings. 
I sometimes get time where maybe at work there's an allocation we have for research, so I can use that time to, to use for, for research and writing. But look, the thing is, is that I just go with the chaos of life. Um, I've had opportunities to be off on book events and be in a hotel for a week without the kids, and I found it really strange that I didn't actually get much writing done at all because the quiet really unsettled me. Yeah. So I find that just at the weekend I'll just do a bit of writing while the kids are around and it's just writing and kids and life and, yeah, yeah. just go with the chaos of it, I think. Yeah, because it's not just people think you're a writer, so it's just the writing, but it's not just the writing, it's the editing. And it's yeah. not just the editing, then you've got to do things like this, yeah. press yeah. as well on top. Yeah. Yeah, the writing's actually pretty small yeah. component of it. And then if you've got a really good publisher like Georgia at Fremantle Press, she's brilliant. So she was always sending stuff back to me and saying, "Can you just let's have a look at this? Let's kind of rework this." And it's sometimes when you're at the point where you're like, "Oh, I can't, I can't look at it one more time." But she was just so good at getting me to like, right, let's keep looking at it. So the yeah. professionalism helps when you've got a good publisher, I reckon. Yeah, and have you got much more press to do? I think I've got a little bit, yeah. And it's the good thing is that I've been able to do a few events with other Fremantle Press authors. So like um, Karen Herbert and David Wish Wilson, which has been really good. And there's been panel sessions and we really kind of feed off each other um, and learn from each other. That's one of the great things about writing panels is that I'm listening as much as like I'm sharing my knowledge. Yeah. yeah. And what about reading? Like obviously you're an academic, so there's a lot of academic uh, reading. What about, do you, can you read for pleasure at all? Yes, I yeah. love reading for pleasure mm-hmm. because having to read for, you know, I love writing lectures and things, but sometimes it's not always the topics you always want to, to read about. You kind of do it because it's part of something. But if I was to read for pleasure, I love reading anything by Billy Connolly because it makes me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love Scottish crime fiction, uh, Rankin, McBride, various others who are really good. Um, and look, in all honesty, the real pleasure reads are Kennedys. I love reading about the Kennedys, mm. Bobby Kennedy, JFK. That's my, that was my real entry into history and why I think I became a history lecturer was because I discovered the Kennedys when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. You have a website? Is that right? I don't have a website. I'm on Twitter. I'm on social media. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And after this, is there anything else lined up? I'd love to do more of something local, but I'm yep. currently writing a book uh, that looks at Hyannis in summer of 1944 and tells the story of the Kennedys in that summer oh. where the whole trajectory of the family changed. And oh. it changed the trajectory of Jack Kennedy's life because it took him on the way to the White House. Yeah. So why that? Have you, have you spent any time over there? What's the attraction? Yeah, I have. The, yeah. the attraction is just that's one of my real passions is, is researching and writing about the Kennedys. So. Yeah, right. Well, Lee Stroll, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Your book, The Ballroom Murder, is out now by Fremantle Press. I really enjoyed it. Congratulations. Lee Stroll, thank you so much. And there I was in conversation with the author Lee Straw discussing her new book of true crime, The Ballroom Murder, out now via Fremantle Press. And if you missed the first part of the interview, you can just hop on the podcast now on all good podcast platforms, and it's there along with my reading of the prologue. And that's where you can also find all former, well, older episodes of The Quiet Carriage as well. And that is all we have time for today. Unfortunately, I've been your host, Paul J. Laverty, and you can find me under all the socials under that name. Until next time. Keep reading.